He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated this morning. Morning, everyone. Let's take a moment. We'll pray together, and then we'll be looking at uh, a theme of shalom this morning, the peace of God, as we bring to a close this series called Constant, next week being the first Sunday in Advent. Uh, we'll be moving in new directions next week, but for now, let's take a moment. We'll pray together. Father, we'd like to thank you for the privilege of gathering within these walls to listen for your voice. We thank you that your Holy Spirit desires that we not only proclaim peace, but that we live in peace internally with ourselves vertically with you, and horizontally with one another. So toward that end, would you equip us to be people of peace and peacemakers even this morning, Father? And we will thank you for the fruit of that as we take steps toward you. We pray this in the name of Christ, who is our hope. Amen. As you may know, if you've grown up in the church, the most famous benediction in the Bible is found in Numbers chapter 6, and I'll just read it for you. This is how it reads. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And so uh, this is a prayer from Moses offered to the nation of Israel. And the word peace there is the word shalom in the Hebrew language. And it, it's powerful. It means not, we'll see this more fully in a moment, but it means not just the absence of conflict, but the presence of wholeness, security, intimacy, beauty. And here's what we know, all of us in the room, our hearts long for peace. We all want peace. No question about it. And here's the other thing we know from this text, number six, God wants to give us peace. This is a prayer of benediction. So here's the question on the table this morning. We want peace. God wants to give us peace. And yet, uh, though we hope for peace, we don't know peace. We don't know it often internally. We don't know it often in a relationship with God. We certainly don't know it in this direction. And so the, that's the question, the framing question this morning, is why, if God wants to give us peace and we want peace, why don't we experience peace? And there's an interesting vignette in... Uh, uh, Luke 19, 42, and Matthew 24, when you combine these together, that gives us a hint into the challenge of finding peace in our world. And this is where Jesus, approaching the last week of his life, is entering the city of Jerusalem. And in both cases, Luke 19 and Matthew 24, it says that when Jesus was at the outs, uh, outskirts of Jerusalem, at the, at the gates, he weeps. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How I long to gather you unto myself as a mother hen would gather her chicks, but you wouldn't have it. And then this is what he says. If only you'd known the things which make for peace. So the implication is you didn't know the things which make for peace, right? And that's why there's no peace. Not that God doesn't want to give it to us. Not that we don't want it, but though we want it, we don't pursue peace the proper fashion. And it's tempting when we read Luke 19 and Matthew 24 
uh, to apply those verses only to those people then and there who rejected Jesus, those who put him on the cross and say, yeah, you know, too bad for them. If only they'd known, they would have known peace. But while those words do apply then and there, the principle applies today as well. Everyone who rejects the Prince of Peace forfeits peace. That's just the way it works. And peace is the deepest longing of our heart, but if we reject the Prince of Peace, we will never really know peace. But even here, we're tempted, many of us in the room, to say, yeah, amen, preach it, brother. Those who reject Christ will never know peace, as if rejection of Christ is something that happens only in the lives of people driving by right now, not us. But let me give us a pause here. Uh, the people who didn't know peace in Luke 19, Matthew 24, were actually the people who knew the Bible best. Did you, did you know that? John 5.39, Jesus says of those who ultimately rejected him and executed him, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. You're experts in the text. You come to church, I mean, I'm paraphrasing now. <laughs> you come to church, you take notes, you fill notebooks, you go to Bible studies, you talk about this stuff all the time. You have small groups, breakfast groups, accountability groups. You know your Bibles. But here's the complaint. You're unwilling to come to me that you might have peace. You fall in love with a, with a caricature of me, says Jesus. But in falling in love with a caricature, you're, re you're actually rejecting me. And so you don't know peace. And on the other hand, we also know <laughs> that it was the people who appeared to be outsiders who ended up actually being the insiders, the people who loved Jesus the most. Um... Women, for example, <laughs> tax collectors, people caught in sin, a Roman soldier. No one would have known these people as people receiving Messiah, but they did. <laughs> and the people who were supposed to receive Messiah actually rejected Messiah. So what we're going to do today is consider God's peace collectively here in the room with enough humility to recognize that maybe we're missing a little bit of that peace because we know our Bibles but do we know the one of whom the text speaks, and are we taking steps to live in relation with that one in such a way that we have peace? And as you know, if you've been here a while, this series is called Constant, and we've gone through many different topics looking at creation, disruption, hope, culmination. It's supposed to be like a little heartbeat. And what we've seen is that this has occurred over and over again in the Bible in many different contexts. And if you hate the whiteboard, good news, it's going away at least through Advent, right? And if you love the whiteboard, good news, it'll probably be back later because <laughs> I really enjoy teaching this way. It's how I teach when I'm on the road, and so it's fun to bring it to you a little bit. But anyway, uh, so we begin here with what is God's vision for peace, creation, right? What is God's vision for peace? And the word in the Old Testament for peace is shalom, and as I've already hinted a little bit, the word means much more than just the absence of conflict. It's that, that we've kind of reduced our uh, understanding of peace. It's, we have a vastly diminished view of peace because we're sick, right? And so we view ceasefire as peace. That's, that's not peace. We, and we view a night at home without any conflict as peace. That's not peace. Not this peace. Uh, so you can't have real peace and shootings at the same time. I get that. You can't have real peace and be arguing at the dinner table every night. I get that as well. 
But this piece is larger than the absence of conflict. It really means universal wholeness and well-being. That's a definition for you, universal wholeness and well-being. And so when God paints a picture of peace, uh, he paints a picture of peace as a fabric in the scriptures. So in Psalm 104, for example, when we read about God's creation of the universe, we read, uh, you, God, covered the earth with the deep, it's the ocean, as with a garment. And the, and the word there for garment is this, is this fabric that's interwoven. If you tear one piece of the garment, then the whole, the whole thing is no good. And so this is a piece, in other words, is an ecosystem. And so when I say shalom is universal wholeness and well-being, this is very important we hear this right now. It means that everything is right for every party. Do you understand? My, if my peace comes at your cost, then this is not shalom. If you have a winner and a loser, this is not shalom. Peace, by definition, shalom by definition means everybody wins, everybody's in. This peace is substantial enough that those who live in it feel no sense of threat. Let me just read for you a marvelous passage, you know, moving ahead, predicting the end of time. It's in Ezekiel. Uh, chapter 34, and so I'll just, I'll just read a little bit here. I'll make a covenant of shalom with them, and then, and, and, uh, speaking of Israel here, and then this is what it reads. And I'll eliminate harmful beasts from the land so that they will live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. Now, that's a metaphor that in this church, where a lot of people love the outdoors, you'll understand this metaphor. If we were in uh, New York, people would cock their heads, and they'd be, they wouldn't understand, but we understand that when you're sleeping in the woods, there, there's a question, there's always a little bit of background, a question mark, right? My wife and I were years ago hiking up in the Mount Baker area, and we arrived late at night, and there's a little open kind of a shed there, and uh, it was pouring rain, so we put our sleeping bags on the picnic table and just slept for the night before we began our little backpacking journey the next day. And in the middle of the night, Donna, Donna wakes up and says, I hear a bear. And I, I was like, I don't hear a bear. I went back to sleep. And she said again, a bear. Oh, there's no bear. It's ridiculous. Go to sleep, you know. And the next morning, we're hiking, and we're on the trail. We're not, we haven't hiked 20 minutes, and there's a bear on the trail. And, you know, Donna's like, I was right. It's a bear. <laughs> but when you're, when you're asleep in the woods, there's always in the background, right? Like when you hear a noise, psh, you're awake. So that's this, look at this. So that they will live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. What a great verse. In other words, things are so perfect that, that there's no sense that I'm prey. Now, don't just apply this to backpacking. Do you understand what I mean? Uh, this applies to all of life. Every, enough for everyone. Everyone's at rest. So this piece is substantial. And, and the beauty of the trajectory of this entire story is this. Like, because this is God's vision, what, we, what, what is foretold is that we'll move into this piece. So we don't know it yet, right? We don't know it, certainly don't know it fully. We've tasted it. But when we've tasted it, the beauty of tasting it is even though we taste it and it goes away, the taste is intended to sustain us. I hope you've known moments when you've moved 
from a feeling of need to a feeling of perfect security and safety. Do you understand? I mean, I hope you've known those kind of moments. They could be, they could be moments of intimacy in a relationship. They could be moments in the outdoors. Uh, several years ago, after teaching in Austria, I was privileged to remain on for the um, Christmas party for the staff at this Bible school where I teach. And the, the party consisted of um, uh, hiking through the snow to a mountain hut. And so we're hiking, and it's snowing, and it's windy, and it's, it's super cold, and we're in a cloud, and there's zero visibility, and the snow is kind of up to, up to here, and many of us don't have the proper footwear, and so our feet are cold, and our bodies are cold, and we d we're not having a good time. And it's quiet, and all you hear is wind and snow, and then eventually you see light. And, you, and, oh, and then you're like this, oh, there's a hut, oh, that's good news. And you get a little closer, and then you hear sound. Here's some laughter, hear an accordion because it's Austria, right? And, and, and then um, and you're a little closer and then you can actually see the hut and you get closer and you're right there and then you open the door and, you're, and there's a blast of warmth and there's accordion music and there's people in lederhosen drinking beer and polka dancing and all this stuff and, and then you walk in and suddenly you're like this, this is perfect. I'm safe from all storms, do you understand? And it, and it becomes for me now a picture that this is the trajectory of history, right? In every area, health, relationship, politics, everything, shalom. That's where it's headed because that's God's desire, right? And that's, that's what God has created for us. And I hope you've known, like I've been privileged to know, foretastes of this, but I hope you also know that it will never be complete until everyone knows it. It's not really shalom until everyone experiences shalom 24-7. That's God's desire, here, that's where it's headed here. But then, of course, uh, what happened? Disruption is what happened. And, we, you know, we all know this from many places in the Scripture, as we've seen every week now for the past two months, every source of disruption is rooted in the fall. And the fall of uh, humanity happened in Genesis chapter 3. So there's this whole rebellion against God's ways in Genesis 3. And the relationship then is broken, and when the relationship is broken, the peace is broken, because shalom at its core is about relationship. And so when the relationship is broken, the, everything's broken, the relationship with God and humanity is broken. Humanity, humankind, each one of us, our relationship within ourselves is broken. Adam's filled with fear and shame that's irrational, he runs and hides, so he's broken inwardly. So I'm broken with God, I'm broken in myself, and I'm broken this way, as you see immediately when God confronts Adam and Eve regarding sin, hey, did you sin? Like, did you disobey? And then all they do is blame, right? So there's brokenness horizontally, brokenness internally, brokenness vertically, everything's broken. And it's not just that it remains like this theoretical brokenness. Oh, no, by Genesis 4, we find the first murder. Uh, and not only is it a murder in Genesis 4, but it's a denial of guilt where Lamech says, hey, a guy wounded me, so I killed him. Oh, by the way, anybody who tries to kill me, I will wipe out his whole family. I'll take vengeance sevenfold, right? And so violence is immediately escalated in, in the very next chapter. And then by chapter 6, verse 5, this is what we read. Every intent of the thought of man's heart was evil, only evil continually. <laughs> and that's the way of it for the rest of time. Slavery, sexism, rape, abuse of power, 
vast chasms between the rich and the poor, plenty of food, but plenty of people going hungry, wars, greed that leads to abuse of the land, that leads to poisoning of food and water, that leads to disease. It's all there. Shalom is absent, right? Now, here's what's interesting. <coughs> if I turn to uh, 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 Jeremiah, I would say the gospel of Jeremiah, but Jeremiah is ultimately good news, but not in the beginning. It's bad news, straight, straight up in the beginning. But in Jeremiah 6, 14, here's a complaint that God has made. This is a very important complaint for us. They've healed the brokenness of my people superficially. Speaking of false prophets. Oh, well, how have they done that? Here's how. They've said peace, peace, when there is no peace. In other words, it's a characteristic of false prophecies is this. Uh, uh, I'm going to tell you that everything's going to be okay, even though everything's not going to be okay. And in particular, what, is, what happens in Jeremiah, and we see it all through history, is uh, a prophet will go to a particular constituency and say to that particular constituency, everything's going to be okay, listen, for you. <laughs> but the reason it's going to be okay for you is because we're going to deal with the bad guys. And, bad, and the, you're never the bad guys. The bad guys are out there. So we're going to deal with the bad guys, and everything's going to be okay for you. And, and what does Jeremiah call that? He calls it, I mean, straight up, false prophecies, a lie, right? Because there's no shalom unless there's shalom for everybody. And so you don't win shalom by pitting one party against the other. I'm reading right now the biography of Hitler. I always, like, whenever I go over to Europe, I try and read something about German history. And so this time, someone said to me, you ought to read the biography of Hitler. I didn't want to, but I thought, okay, this will be an interesting read. And it really is a very interesting read because what I'm learning about Hitler in the 1920s is before coming to power, he was able to unite very different groups of people by creating a scapegoat for the ills of Germany. People were beaten down. They were afraid of the future. And so they, like he said, here's the problem. It's the problem of the Jews. It's the problem of the Jews. And, and although the people who aligned with him didn't agree with each other, he united them based on fear and hate. Am I making sense? And, and, and so I'll just say this. As we pray for our leaders and seek to hold our leaders accountable, we've got to recognize the danger of groupthink here. We have to recognize the danger of, of, of winning a peace at the expense of others. We have to recognize that. It's a real danger. And we also need to recognize that shalom is a byproduct of a heart yoked with Christ. Uh, not our participation with outward forms of faith. And certainly not our participation in a particular political party, any particular political party, no. Shalom is the byproduct of a heart yoked with Christ. So what, what you see in like the arc of Scripture is there's not only disruption, but you could give a second D or deception, right? Like settling for a false peace. And, and, and seeking to find peace in the wrong ways. Jeremiah, chapter 7, thinking uh, that there's peace because we're in the temple of the Lord. In other words, oh, we're safe because we, we, you know, we come to church, so we're safe. So we th some people think that participating in outward forms of faith leads to peace. Other people think that gaining knowledge leads to peace. John 5, 39, right? You search the scriptures because you think that in them they have eternal life. If I just study the Bible more, I'll have peace. No, you won't. <laughs> the, Bi the Bible's meaningless unless the Bible leads to a profound existential experience with Christ. You must know Christ as a friend to, to know peace. 
And then some think that withdrawal leads to peace. That's that group I mentioned last week called the Essenes. They were like, the world is terrible. We're just going to go hide away somewhere. Uh, but then in Acts 1.8, Jesus says, oh, here's your calling. I'm sending you out into the world, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And, 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 and so you can know peace, but you'll know peace in the context of relating with people very different than you. So um, when we discover by looking at the arc of history... This thing about peace, what we discover over and over again is that it's overwhelmingly tempting to blame others for our loss of peace. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. Cain blames, blames Abel. Republicans blame Democrats. Democrats blame Republicans. Poor blame rich. Rich blame poor. And so it goes, right? I mean, you see it all the time. So the reality is, to the extent that humanity cuts itself off from the source of peace, then the shalom of God will be missing. So, uh, what do I think about this? Well, I, I wanted to say to you, on the one hand it's this, on the other hand it's this, but I actually have five hands to give you. So, so, so just follow with me here. Uh, because on the one hand, this is terrible news, right? Matthew 24, 6 tells us, there will always be war. Always. Wars and rumors of wars. Uh, and so we don't need to be surprised that uh, ceasefires implode, that peace treaties uh, end up being unsustainable. This is, I mean, Jesus said it. We're going to live in a, a violent world. We do. And, we, and it's reality. So what Jesus said is aligned with reality. So on the one hand, this is terrible news. On the other hand, on the other hand, uh, Ecclesiastes 3.10, 9 and 10, says, look, God has placed eternity in our hearts. In other words, our own longings for peace are universal. Everybody wants peace. So our longing for peace and the absence of it should be viewed by us as an opportunity to share Christ, right? And, and, and some, I mean, some of the best and most popular music ever written is music about peace, John Lennon's Imagine, super popular. Uh, Louis Armstrong, What a Wonderful World, popular. Uh, uh, Judy Garland, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, popular. Uh, Bob Dylan, Blown in the Wind, popular. I, I could probably name any artist and you could name a peace song, but we're too big a group for that. So. Uh, but you see, everybody wants, so there is no peace and everybody wants it. This is good news for us as, as those who are heralds of peace. But on the other hand, there's a third hand, and this is the problem. On the third hand, and I don't have a verse for this, it's just reality, we've blown this opportunity time again. Why? Because the church is guilty of war over and over and over and over again. I don't know if you know this or not. The bloodiest war in all history, 8 million dead, 30-year war in Europe. <laughs> and, oh, what was that war about? Oh, it was a war between the Protestants and the Catholics, right? And I'll just tell you, when, you know, when you travel, if you travel in Europe, there's some deep-seated, you know, still rivalries going on between Protestants and Catholicism. Everybody loves Jesus, but they don't like each other. This little town, Schladming, where I live, it's fascinating to hear the history. The, the two, the priest and the, and, the, and the pastor now work together, and it's hopeful. But when you hear the history of the buildings, there was, they kept adding height to the tower of their steeple, because they both wanted to be the highest. Are you kidding me? 
This is, I mean, this is absurd, right? And yet, you know, at the heart of it, that's this, hey, no, my group's better, right? And, and it's the same spirit that led to the 30-year war that's led to colonialism, that's led to our blindness of slavery, so that when we then open our mouths and say, hey, yeah, the church is all about peace, sometimes uh, you'll pardon people for saying we're disingenuous. <laughs> because if in the name of the Prince of Peace, we have been guilty of advocating genocide, we've remained silent about sexual abuse, we've advocated torture, we've advocated abortion, when we do that, we destroy our witness. And that's why Christ and his kingdom stands outside all political parties and why we must not only pray for our leaders, but clearly articulate what God's reign stands for and what God's peace looks like as we seek to hold leaders accountable. And so, so on the third hand, like on the one hand, there's always war. On the other hand, everybody wants peace. But on the other hand, we, we've not done a very good job of offering peace. But on the other hand, there are offers of peace all around us in our world that are deceptive offers of peace. In other words, this harkens back to Jeremiah again and the false prophets saying, oh, yeah, you can have, look, you can have peace. Just gather at Green Lake and hold hands. And I'm not against it. If I was in town, I would have been there yesterday. We had a party at our house up in the, up the pass. Great, gather, hold hands. Very good, significant moment. Understand, it changes nothing of the human heart. Peace doesn't come about by gestures. Peace comes about by transformation. And gestures are good, and gestures are important, but do not, do not ever put hope in gestures, including the gesture of gathering within a building like this and thinking that because we gather, we're safe. No. So on the one hand, war. On the other hand, everybody wants peace. On the other hand, we haven't done a good job of offering peace. On the other hand, there are lots of offers of peace, but they're false. On the fifth hand... There's hope. Really? Yes. Ephesians 2. He, Christ, is himself our peace. He's broken down every dividing wall. It's already done. From God's perspective, peace has begun. Now, oh, by the way, where does it begin? It begins right here in this community of faith, always. Colossians, chapter 1, verse 20. It was the Father's good pleasure for all fullness to dwell in Christ and through Christ to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, everything reconciled in Christ. So that uh, in a couple of weeks here when we hear Handel's Messiah, unless you're already playing Christmas music, which many of you are. Um, Isaiah 9, 6, remember it? And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and then finally what? Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. What does that mean? Unpack it in the Hebrew language. I love this. Jesus is foretold here that Jesus will be the leader and commander of an army of peace. An army of peace. What a weird statement right? What does that look like? Well, it will actually be a substantial consideration this coming winter because we're going to look this winter at the kingdom of God through the lens of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. But for now, well, let me just note a couple of things. Like this army of peace, if the shalom of God will exist, it must exist with the justice of God. So peace and justice are not um, uh, antithetical or, or uh, 
paradoxical. No, they exist together. And because there's justice, there's peace. So peace isn't about sweeping things under a rug. Peace is actually about bringing things into a light and dealing with them. And then the shalom begins with knowing peace with God. Romans 5.1. Since we've been justified by his death, we have peace with God. So it all begins this way. If you don't have peace with God, then you don't have peace. And then you can't be a peacemaker ultimately. You can, you can, we can hold hands, we do nice things, but real peace begins with peace with God. And peace with God begins with reconciliation, and reconciliation begins with Christ. So, so we have peace, and then having peace with God opens us up to become then peacemakers. And the way that we become peacemakers, over and over again, the way we become peacemakers is by responding to revelation. Always. Uh, sometimes people ask me, you know, where, where do I get sermon illustrations? And I tell people, I, I, I'm subscribing to two magazines, Alpinist, which is all about climbing, and The Plow, which is this um, Amish magazine, basically. <laughs> and and uh, got to stay diverse, people. <laughs> and in The Plow... I just read yesterday this amazing article. This, th- there's a guy named Ethan, and uh, when he was 10 or something like that, his dad was killed in an automobile accident, and it affected him profoundly. Uh, and, and as he began to see how many people died in cars every year, he decided, you know what, I'm not going to ever own a car. I'm going to just ride my bike everywhere. So he owns no car. And this, le- this led to a cascading effect of him becoming a peacemaker. He actually now lives with his wife and kids on a farm in Missouri, no power, no electricity, no, no phones, no, uh, no internet, no computers, none, none of that stuff. They raise bees. They raise their own food. They, they at night, they get, up, they get up with the sun and they pray for an hour. And then at night, they, uh, they pray for peace, actually. And then at night, it's all candles. And uh, 80,000 people, they started this 10 years ago or something, 80,000 people come through in search of peace to their little farm, right? Now, why would I tell you such a ridiculous story? Be- First, I, when I say this to people, people go, oh, that's crazy. And here's my response. If that's crazy, may the world go insane, right? However, having said that, uh, most of you in the room are not going to quit your job, move to Missouri, and live by candlelight. I understand that. But I hope you understand that people like that exist as a prophetic sign to wake us up and ask the question, okay, if they're taking that many steps, can I take one? Is there one step I can take toward being a peacemaker? Yeah, probably. There, there's probably a relationship that you need to reconcile in your life. It might be with somebody who voted differently than you. It might, it might be with, a, with somebody who's uh, uh, hurt you profoundly, betrayed you. Maybe it's time to cross a social divide for you to open your home to people different than you. Maybe it's time for you to forgive someone. Uh, in my own experience recently, uh, I've begun meditating on the 23rd Psalm every morning in my time of meditation. I have for years meditated on the prayer of St. Francis. Now I'm meditating on the 23rd Psalm. And by meditating, I, I, I don't mean anything, you know, strangely... Um, whatever, I just mean uh, repeating the text as I prayerfully think about the Lord being my shepherd. And this is giving me peace. 
giving me peace. Brought me to tears a couple mornings ago. Another person begins a Sabbath practice, someone I know, shutting off all computers and phones for 24 hours. Shalom. Somebody begins simplifying their life. They start giving stuff away and getting out of debt. Shalom. <laughs> someone names their addiction, comes into life, begins dealing with it. Shalom. Someone begins practicing hospitality, having parties with their neighbors. Shalom. There's lots of things that we can do. Let me give you one example as we close. This is audio. If you guys remember the shooting in the Amish community some years ago, uh, Charles, I think his name was Charles Roberts or Charles Taylor, I can't remember, but uh, the, the gunman shot these little girls and then killed, and killed himself. And this is a testimony, actually, of the gunman's mother who lived in this predominantly Amish community was terrified of the fallout after this had happened. So listen with me. Time now for StoryCorps. This Sunday marks the 10th anniversary of the day a young gunman barricaded himself inside a one-room Amish schoolhouse near Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and opened fire. He killed five children and injured five others before killing himself. The Amish community responded by forgiving the shooter and embracing his family, especially his mother, Terry Roberts. Today, we'll hear from her. She first heard about what happened while driving to her son's house. Terry Roberts sat down at StoryCorps with her friend, Dolores Hayford. As I turned on the radio on the way there, the newscaster was reporting that there had been a shooting at the local Amish schoolhouse. By that time, I was at my son's home, and I saw my husband and the state trooper standing right in front of me as I pulled in. And I looked at my husband. He said, it was Charlie that week. We had a very private funeral for our son. But as we went to the gravesite, we saw 30 to 40 Amish start coming out from around the side of the graveyard. And they surrounded us like a crescent. And love just emanated from them. I will never forget the devastation caused by my son. I mean, especially in the situation with Rosanna. Rosanna is the most injured of the survivors. Her injuries were to her head. She is now 15, still tube-fed and in a wheelchair. And she does have seizures. And when it gets to be this time of year, as we get closer to the anniversary date, she seizes more. And that's certainly not the life that this little girl should have lived. So I asked if it would be possible that I might come and help with Rosanna once a week. So I read to her, I bathe her, dry her hair. Does Rosanna know who you are, Terry? I believe Rosanna does know who I am. I can't say that for 100% certainty. I just sense that she does know. One of the fathers the other night he said, none of us would have ever chosen this. But the relationships that we have built through it, you can't put a price on that. And their choice to allow life to move forward was quite a healing balm for us. And I think it's a message the world needs. That's Terry Roberts with her friend Dolores Hayford in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. 
This interview is archived at the Library of Congress. It's a message the world needs. Blessed are the peacemakers. Who are they? Look around. You are the presence of the peace of Christ in our world. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in the midst of your trials. Devoting yourselves to prayer and contributing to the needs of each other. Practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Never pay back evil for, with evil uh, to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. And as far as possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace. You have a step to take this morning. I do. Uh, and so as we close, we sing together. Uh, if you want to name your step in prayer, Lord, this is my step towards shalom. Forgiveness, hospitality, generosity, simplification, dealing with your addiction, your hidden sin. You can name it in our prayer books up here. You can go with our prayer team and pray with them. But don't leave carrying a barrier to peace when God wants peace to pour through you into a world that we know is desperate for peace. Father, meet us now in response. We're grateful that peace is available. And here's Jesus. If you had only known the things which make for peace, may we know them this morning, Father, not in theory, but in practice, in the name of Christ, who is our peace, we pray. Amen.